0: Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's show is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Great underwear, t shirts, socks, polo shirts, better than what you're wearing now. For 20% off your order, visit macweldon.com, M A C K W E L D O N.com, and use promo code history. Um, It looks like George Washington is coming out of the pool in sandals and a toka, pointing up to the sky and saying, bazinga. That's me writing down my first reactions to seeing a photo of one of the early George Washington statues. Congress commissioned this 12-ton marble statue, enthroned Washington, to sit in the rotunda of Congress, to bask in the honor of the United States of America. But when it arrived in 1843 at the Washington Navy Yard, it looked very different from what they had expected. Washington was portrayed as the Greek god Zeus. His eyes bugged out. He was half naked. His upper body with a strong muscular physique. A towel around one of his shoulders. Carrying something in his other hand. What is it? Oh, a peace pipe. The reaction was horror from congressmen, And it was very adverse to Republican sensibilities. He was sitting on a throne. And the poor look, combined with the fact that the 12-ton statue was cracking the floor of the Capitol Rotunda, led Congress to move the Washington statue outside, and eventually into the Smithsonian, where it is today. His wasn't the first statue to create controversy, nor will it be the last. Honoring George Washington, first president, hero of the revolution, it should have been easier. But there were a few unsuccessful attempts along the way. One Dutch sculptor comes over and begs Washington to sit for him. And then he portrays Washington as Caesar, you know, in a bust. He tries to get Congress to pay for sculpture, and then they they refuse. He lends the bust to Washington, and Washington's like, look, I will not accept this as a gift. But he displays it in the presidential mansion. Well, of course, soon a bill arrives for $1,500. Washington, no doubt furious, sends it back. The sculptor then sells it to the Spanish minister, and eventually it's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art now. You can go see it. North Carolina, after the war spirit of 1812, have just driven the British from our country again, and they wanted to make a big statement. What better to do than to get an Italian sculptor and make a huge statue of Washington. And they consult Thomas Jefferson. He says, oh, you got to use this Italian sculptor Canova. And uh, he has Washington looking like a Caesar in a Roman tunic. We're back to that. Writing a tablet, which is perhaps, you know, the independence of America. It could be his farewell address. They... Allocate $10,000 for this project, and in Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, a state of farmers, this is a lot of money, and there's a lot of gasps about that. But by the time it's done, they need a whole dome to to cover it and everything. It ends up being 60000 very controversial. And then, 10 years after its installation, it's destroyed in a fire. Honoring George Washington, it should not have been as difficult, especially because Washington, while still alive, was involved in efforts for one of his own statues. I mean, it's kind of cool, right? Getting to pick your own statue. He knew that he would be a historical figure, especially when, after the revolution was over, in every one of these historical stories, the person who led the military forces had then seized power. Washington gives his sword to the Democratic Congress. That is not something we study enough. The state of Virginia, towards the end of his generalship, decides that they will have a statue built. And here they consult the man who would know it best. You know, who would know best what the good taste was? The U.S. Ambassador to France, Thomas Jefferson. And he suggests Jean-Antoine Houdon. And this great French sculptor and artist is sent portraits. But he's like, I I, I must see him. I must see who he is and what he really looks like. And so Houdon goes to Mount Vernon and has Washington sit for him. And not only that, but kind of follows him around and see how he carries himself. Thus, he can make a terracotta model of him that he's going to bring back to France to sculpt some more. And then, and this is a great thing in history because we really do know what Washington looks like because he takes a life mask. Oh, yeah. I mean, it must have been an annoying procedure to go through one of those. But, And Jefferson asks Washington on Houdon's behalf, what type of dress should he be wearing in the statue at Richmond? Uh, common statue etiquette at this time would have portrayed generals as Roman figures maybe with a few more clothes than the uh, than the one in, uh, in Washington. But this doesn't sit well with him. Um, it's also changing, too. There is a radical pick of General Wolfe from the French and Indian War that portrayed him not as a Roman general, as was supposed to happen, but in modern clothes. And while it's controversial, it's also influential. And this is on Washington's mind. Washington responds to Jefferson. I do not wish to dictate in the matter. Then he goes on to, you know, dictate in the matter. But the servile adherence to the garb of antiquity might not be altogether so expedient as some little devotion to modern costume. He's picking out a statue, and he actually gets to see it too. It rises in the black and white checkered state house of Richmond. He gets a chance before his death to admire himself, not as a Roman or a Greek, but in civilian clothes, supported by a farmer's plow and leaning on 13 rods representing the original states. He likes it, Uh, and his good friend, the Marquis of Lafayette, also agrees. He says when he sees the statue, that is the man himself. I can almost realize that he's going to move. A monument in the new city of Washington proved just as controversial. It was to be a tall obelisk rising into the sky. We see it today, of course, we know that triangle, Washington Monument. But Washington, of course, though he would see the city that bears his name, never saw that monument. In fact, it would not be built until... 100 years after the signing of the declaration long after Washington's death and and that's because it was interrupted by an event and you can see the scars of that event even today if you look at the washington monument notice that the shades of the stone below doesn't match the shade of the stone above they're different there's a point at which it separates and that represents the new monument and the old and the old work that was originally done. It has to do with a reaction to the building of that monument, a kind of early fake news story, and a story of fear and certainly hatred. I spoke about it on my podcast in 2006, so I think I'll just consult myself on it. Here I am back then.
1: On the night of Monday, March 6, 1854, Between the hours of 1 and 2 a.m., the night watchman for the then-unconstructed Washington Monument was standing guard. A group of four to ten men rushed out of the darkness, surrounded his shack, and piled stones against his door. The intruders then stole a stone from the grounds, loaded it into a handcart, the watchman could not explain to the investigating committee why he waited almost two hours before sounding the alarm or why he failed to drive off the intruders with a shotgun that he had access to. No arrests were made and the stone was never recovered. But it's widely known that the perpetrators were a chapter of know-nothings. These know-nothings had no problem with a stone, of course, but they did have a problem with who donated it. The Monument Society needed cash, and so they invited governments, municipalities, even Indian tribes to contribute stones to the monument. Stones came from everywhere, and among the stones received was one from Pope Pius IX. It was a block of historic marble from the Temple of Concord in Rome, and it was approximately three feet long, ten inches thick, and eighteen inches high. The gift infuriated the American party. Know-Nothings vowed that the Pope's stone, as it came to be known, would never be part of the Washington Monument. Not only did the Know-Nothings steal the stone, but they also took over the Monument Society. A group of 750 members of the Know-Nothings joined the Washington National Monument Society and then elected 17 of, of their own as the officers. And for a period of about three years, they had effective control of the Washington Monument. Construction on the monument was continued by these no-not things, and they succeeded in laying about 26 feet of masonry. But the marble they used had been rejected by the master mason, and most of it ended up having to be replaced.
0: And so for many years, going through to the Civil War, you have this half-built monument there. Mark Twain called it a half-built chimney. It's not until 1878, with, flush with cash, the Washington, D.C. government, you know, well-financed at that time. That's when most of the Washington you see today was built. Right after that war, the kind of gilded age, this gets finished, but with different stone and a stone of a different shade. Oh, statues, as close to immortality and permanence as we could get, right? Because they're made of stone and metal. They'll last forever. I mean, they really won't, but we think they will. But more to the point, we think they'll hold their meaning forever. And if we build an honorific statue of someone, that will stay forever and remind future generations of who they were and what they did. And that's somewhat true. We also think, perhaps, that it will retain the same meaning. After all, it's the same statue. The carver's work is the same, whether done by hammer or pneumatic drill. The meaning must be the same. But on that, we could be wrong. I have to tell you that statues are controversial right now, totally under fire uh, Confederate statues. Threatened with removal? President Trump tweeting that it's sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. I haven't spent much time on Trump tweets, but here I'll point out that these are usually local statues, statues in localities. They're not our statues, and you can't change history, but you can learn from it. Well, who can disagree with that? <laughs> I certainly agree with that tweet. <laughs> you can't change history. You can, as I think we do a lot on this podcast, go deeper and investigate things to see what is the, really the history and try to refine it, uh, hopefully without deliberately changing it or you know allowing your own opinions in on it as best as you can. Here he goes. Robert E. Lee. Who's next? Washington and Jefferson. So foolish, exclamation point. So this tweet generated a lot of controversy, but considering, uh, you know, it's the context is the events of Charlottesville, tragic events. But I do think the point he's raising is mostly a canard. It's not to say that there aren't questions about Washington and Jefferson. I think you deal with it every time you're dealing with those two individuals. I think every decision... To do anything related to Washington and Jefferson has to be seen in the fuller context now. But to use the presidential speech, I mean, I know it's a tweet, but to use that bully pulpit to bring up that, oh, we're taking down Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, is Washington next? I mean, I think it's silly. I realize that there's some outlandish people who might be suggesting that we take down all of those statues and I'm even going to relate later in the program about a an incident I was involved somewhat personally with involving my college. And, you know, there's a pastor in Chicago talking about to take the Washington Statute down. I get it. But I really don't think presidential rhetoric should be used to match a, a real issue that's actually being not something that's dreamed up. And I'm a little aware that the president is sort of changing the narrative. I mean, the events in Charlottesville did start because a Robert E. Lee statue was removed, a local decision by that town. But I think so much more occurred in Charlottesville. And even discussing statues, you are a little bit allowing, you know, one political force here, in this case, the president of the United States, to dictate what the debate's going to be about. But you know what? I'm game. Let's talk about them. It was something that Congress wanted to call a national Valhalla. A bill back in 1864 called for each state to send two statues in marble or bronze of deceased persons who had been citizens thereof, who were illustrious for their historic renown or for distinguished military services such as the state might deem worthy. It took a little while. Uh, But eventually, states started sending statues. Connecticut sent Roger Sherman. Massachusetts sent Samuel Adams. Pennsylvania sent Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steamboat. First statue takes about eight years. Slowly but surely, states start sending these statues of important notables. But something different happens in 1909. Silver is an antibiotic that's not often thought of. During World War I, soldiers were using silver leaf to treat infected wounds. After the discovery of penicillin around the time of World War II, there wasn't much need for silver to be used as an antibiotic. But now, silver is coming back, and I bring it up because of our sponsor, Mac Wilden. Because among other great things that they do, they have introduced silver into clothing. That's right. You can wear silver in underwear, in polo shirts, and take advantage of its antimicrobial nature. U.S. Special Forces, NASA, Olympic athletes, these are among the people who are using silver in the clothing. So Mac Weldon has done the same thing, and they infuse it into their socks, their underwear, and their shirts. It kills odors by neutralizing bacteria. There's a tendency to just think about the clothing that we have on on the surface. Your jacket, jeans, your shoes. We put so much time into thinking about that. And I think it's just human nature. We we, we then don't think about what's underneath and we go cheap. And then you're buying things that are made out of cheap materials that aren't going to support you. And they're going to make you feel lousy. So don't do it. Go to MacWeldon.com and you can get 20% off using promo code history. They want you to feel comfortable in what they design. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. They'll still refund you or they'll exchange it. No questions asked. That's how confident Mac Weldon feels about the clothes that they're making. Really high quality cotton, but not just cotton, other fabrics. That are going to help you stay comfortable during the day. I've ordered from them. It's an easy to use website. So here's the deal if you go to macweldon.com, M A C K W E L D O N.com, and use this promo code, history, just the word history, you'll get 20% off. Gentlemen, upgrade. Something different happens in 1909. Virginia sends a statue of Washington. That can be expected. And then, though the legislature considers able Virginians, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, James Madison, they send a statue of Robert E. Lee. This doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, There's many outcries in Congress. Charles Curtis, now a congressman who's going to be a future vice president of the United States, a member from Kansas, says, I think this is a disgrace. I will not sanction official honor to a traitor. In fact, Kansas threatens to send a statue of John Brown in response. But the choice was left to the states and the states one by one, these so-called redeemer states who had taken over from the Reconstruction governments. Really, that had occurred in the 1890s, but now you're seeing them reach an economic level where they're able to, to send something. Army veterans, especially the Grand Army of the Republic, for instance, the Chicago Regiment, says it was against the principles of our republic. Back then, you had a strong Union soldier movement that was very involved in politics. You know. G.A.R. in New York State, ask the Attorney General, and this is under the Taft administration, to remove the statue. Taft is president. The Attorney General says that a statue of Robert E. Lee is actually eloquently testifying to the magnanimous country that has completely forgiven an unsuccessful effort to destroy the Union. Well, that was Robert E. Lee. Other states now. North Carolina sends Zebulon Vance. Alexander Stevens is sent by Georgia. He's the vice president, former vice president of the Confederacy. Alabama sends Jabez Curry, uh, an officer, cavalry officer, that has just recently been replaced by Helen Keller, which is Alabama's contribution. In 1931, Mississippi sends Jefferson Davis. Now, in 1909, with all that controversy... And the protests of the G.A.R., you know, they just kind of install the Lee statue and not make a big deal of it. In 1931, with Jefferson Davis, there's a celebration led by his great-granddaughter. The U.S. Marine Band plays. Pat Harrison, senator from Mississippi, suggests that installing the Davis statue is a rebel yell for a common country. Yes, this is the time of reconciliation. And we talked about President Taft's attorney general, which the president concurred with. Charles Francis Adams, uh, relative to the great John Adams, is going to make a similar statement about that there's nothing wrong with Lee Statue in 1903. Theodore Roosevelt's War Department, during his presidency, bans the use of the term rebel for any individual person, unless they're referring to an archive document. But you can't refer to people as rebels anymore. And so you see this change right about this point. There are, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, over 1,500 memorial statues to Confederate soldiers, individuals, leaders in the United States. Both Woodrow Wilson and FDR would welcome Confederate and Union veterans for the 50th and 75th anniversaries of Gettysburg. So people would come dressed in their Confederate war clothing, and they simulated at one point a charge, Pickett's Charge. Of course, these men were too old to really uh, go that fast. But instead of, uh, you know, meeting each other with rifles, they shook hands. But, of course, it's true to point out that missing from these ceremonies, of course, were slaves, African-American soldiers who fought for liberty, and those that were battling with Jim Crow laws, battling with the legacy that some of the new Redeemer governments in the South were instituting. Here's what one article says. Seriously, though, I think the fact that we're arguing over whether or not we should end the free ride through our history that the treasonous racists have enjoyed for 150 years is a very salubrious moment. For example, it is now much more widely known that the great majority of these statues were erected long after the Civil War, and that most of them were erected either during the high tide of lynching in the South, during the beginning of the 20th century, or during the 1950s, when mass resistance to racial desegregation was gathering steam in the old Confederacy. And so I'm very sensitive to that, that, you know, a A person is walking down a street, and there's this large stone structure celebrating an individual that wanted to continue to put their great-grandfather or grandfather into chains and to treat them harshly and to not give them any opportunities and to not give opportunities that they have now themselves. I don't question at all why this debate's going on. The Southern Poverty Law Center has been forwarding around a chart. They've actually documented all of the Confederate monuments where there are, and um that's something I'm going to talk about briefly because I think there's there's some points to be discussed with it uh but to describe it essentially, it documents that there weren't too many statues built around that eighteen sixty to eighteen eighty period. It is the eighteen ninety to nineteen twenty that's the real peak, with the apex being in 1910, the peak of Confederate statue building. To hear many interpretations of it, this is the same time that Jim Crow is being placed, Redeemer governments are taking over, blacks are being lynched, the NAACP has formed to call attention uh, to these atrocities. Uh there's a little bit of an uptick, not as much as the 1900, 1910, but there's a little bit of an uptick during the 20s as the Ku Klux Klan is spreading across the nation and seeing a renewed membership. And then there is a surge during the civil rights movement and the resistance to Brown and various other civil rights rulings of the Supreme Court. A particular note on the Southern Poverty Law Center chart is that that's when you start seeing the most action at schools where civil war monuments are being placed uh, at schools it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW for prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
0: 18+. Now, I'm inclined to agree, looking at the widely circulated chart, that there certainly seem it seems that both the use of the Confederate battle flag and the installation of monuments is um pretty heavy during the late fifties and early sixties during the resistance to Brown versus the Board of Education and the like. I would question their other point that um most of the statues constructed in the South that are Confederate statues are celebrating oppression or celebrating the oppression of black people or white supremacy. Um, It's a reason. uh, It's buried in there, no doubt. (laughs) I also would suggest that, first of all, it's a pretty long period where the peak of their graph is, where most of these statues were constructed. You're going all the way from 1890 to 1910. It's also true to say that there wasn't much money, Right after Civil War. So that's another factor that a reason why a lot of these statues weren't built. Now, in the North, there certainly was more money. And you saw you see statues in Ohio. Some of the Eagle statues coming out as early as 60, 1863 and 1864. Um, certainly the Reconstruction governments, which are just coming out of military control, are not going to be installing any monuments to people who had fought against the Union. But I would suggest a little more care in at least considering, you know, the historical reasons for some of the statues. Uh, I looked at two various Southern historical journals around the time of the 50s when they were installing some monuments and talking about uh, some of the history. Uh, Two different – here's the Georgia Historical Quarterly talking about the history of the Athens Monument Association and their – Come one, come all, said a flyer. Let us raise our monument. Let it be on record, on high, so our children's children may from it learn how our brave ones died. Those who cannot contribute a bale of cotton or something more valuable can send a bushel of potatoes or something else. And those who cannot can send a pair of socks or some trifle. You know, a pair of socks. Um... This is from 1870 in Athens, Georgia, and it demonstrates a desire to have a monument even back then, but also the lack of resources. Six years since Lee's surrender, two years longer than the war itself had lasted. Yet the ladies of Athens, despite their continuous efforts, had not been able to raise money sufficient to build the monument. And so, to boost efforts, they laid a cornerstone in 1871. In Florida, a historical journal article from 1955 talks about a monument to be ordered in Tallahassee at the state's capital uh, memorial, suggested by Governor Perry of Florida in 1881. And there was some fundraising for it, but it was slow. After his And after Perry dies, uh, the project languishes, in 1889, the park across from Public School No. 1 had been changed to Robert E. Lee Park. And in the same year, on Jefferson Davis's birthday, a celebration was held. Troops in uniforms came from St. Augustine and from all over the state to participate. Okay, from the Florida historical examples, I just think it's worthy to point out that they... I'm not disputing the Southern Poverty Law Center's historical chart, not at all the interpretations where I think you got to be just a little careful, like this thought that no one wanted to build these monuments right after the Civil War. There's some contrary information to that. And, uh, you know, I think there was a desire. I also think you have to look at the economic situation. This from the Georgia historical article in 1955, by the late 1890s, the monument movement had ceased to be so much of a genuine sentimental expression of regard for the memory of Confederate soldiers as one that had become a commercial movement engineered by marble and granite companies to boost their business. These later monuments came from appropriations by cities, counties, and states. The Southern Poverty Law Center's claim is that the increase in statues are due to the Redeemer government's Jim Crow and civil rights resistance, and that's arguably some of this spike. But it also coincides with with the recovery economically of the states as slow as it was the commercial growth uh, improvements in how both marble granite could be shaped and moved around another factor is referenced in that journal is the appearance in new england where quarries were and or using bronze from michigan or other places you know michigan copper or copper from other places Companies like Monumental Bronze in Connecticut looking for eager towns, looking to commission statues, a big business. Um, if you look at the same chart of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the biggest spike in the building of statues is 1910. Okay, It is in that time period that we have the development of pneumatic tools to better craft granite and better mining tools, better and discovery of new sources of mining. The ability to use various acids to get more bronze out of the mind, the having having of bronze prices from eighteen seventy five. So, if you're looking at a price of a hundred pounds, five hundred and twelve dollars constant eighteen seventy five, two hundred and ten in nineteen twenty. The having of bronze prices during that time as well. So, there are other factors. I just think it's important to consider it as a package. Just to show the influence of some of these companies, um, and I'll name a couple, uh, Smith-Granite Company, Thomas Phillips and Son Company, McGovern-Granite Company, Hartford, Connecticut. There are identical statues across the United States where the Confederate and the Union Soldiers looked the same. It was just a matter of who they were shipping it to. I mean, you we know, you know lost in this whole debate is that they're because they're not as controversial because these are people fighting for the Union, but there are Union statues all over the North. So the statue building itself was not uncommon in either place. Uh, as I said, there's these identical statues, and some of the Southerners started to complain. You know, it either say CSA or USA, but the soldier would look the same. And uh, sometimes they tip the hat a little different for the Confederates, but it's actually a, a Yankee Union hat that the Confederates are wearing. In 1901, in Elberon, Georgia, the statue was so controversial because it looked like a Yankee soldier that the residents took the statue down and buried it. I think another factor that's kind of cloaked by today's debates and the association with these statues, you know, with neo-Nazis and white supremacists, is that some of them are indeed memorials. And indeed, some of the people putting them up knew the people who had died in the war. And I think it's important to think about that. I mean, if we just treat the war alone as some kind of calamity, um, I think there was a feeling like that in a lot of places, that it was a dreadful war. You know, you're talking about 35 years later, 1900. There's people who want to honor the memory, and there's also generations who are coming who don't have the memory of the painful part. But it's not to say that the meaning of statues cannot change, because I absolutely think they can. I mean, the uh, governor of Maryland, in removing in removing a Confederate statue from Annapolis, had said that it had come to mean a different thing when it was born, and, and then it was born. And I mean... We could we could say Governor Hogan's just being expedient because he had been against the removal and now after Charlottesville was for the removal. But I also would like to explore his point too. I believe that meanings can indeed change. That uh, the important thing to focus on is the people and not a statue as some objective unchanging thing. But it is a focus of interpretation from the people, and so what the changing view of the people is very important. My only caveat as, you know, the history guy is, don't forget that if you're going back in time, you've also got to look at those people in total and what everyone was thinking. And beware of the temptation to merely apply modern values. That's all philosophical. I think an example of a changing symbol is probably one of the most hated figures Jefferson Davis. I was asked on Cora about uh, Jefferson Davis and what happened to him. And I think the story is probably surprising to a lot of people. I mean, he had just led a rebellion against the United States with uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, in England. You know, it was so bad that when the king was restored to power after Cromwell's death, they actually dug him up and hung his body. That's how strongly that they felt about the symbol of the rebellion. Now, I must tell you, there are statues of Cromwell in the United Kingdom today, and his name it does adore various places. And, of course, there's a statue of George Washington in London. Well, it starts with Jefferson Davis was captured and imprisoned in Virginia. And for a short time, maybe a year, it was a pretty rough imprisonment. No books or visitors. And then it got a bit looser. His bail was set at 100,000, roughly a million and a half, two million today. There were motions filed to prosecute him, oddly enough, for the invasion of Maryland and Washington, D.C. The issue of the South was too difficult legally to parse right now.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There's cartoons in newspapers revealing how little sympathy there was in the North for Davis when he's making complaints about poor food. They're dismissed by former soldiers who lived off mouldy, hard tacks during the war. The indictment of Jefferson Davis really displays this fire. Listen to this, United States of America, District of Columbia, county of Washington, to wit, the jurors of the United States of America, within and for the county of Washington aforesaid, in the District of Columbia, aforesaid, upon their oath present. That Jefferson Davis, late of County of Henrico, in the state of Virginia, yeoman, being an inhabitant and resident within the said United States of America, and owing allegiance and fidelity to the said United States of America, not having the fear of God before his eyes, nor weighing the duty of his said allegiance, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, wickedly devising and disturbing the peace and tranquility of the said United States of America to disturb the government of the said United States and to stir, move, and excite rebellion, insurrection, and war against the United States of America. That said Jefferson Davis afterward, to wit, on said 15th day of June in the year of our Lord, 1864, being then and there leagued in conspiracy with a number of insurgents and false traitors waging open war against the said United States. Did unlawfully, maliciously, and traitorously order and command a great multitude of said insurgents and false traitors, who were then and there, to wit, at the county of Henrico aforesaid in the state of Virginia, unlawfully and traitorously assembled and banded together to a great number, who then and there acknowledged, recognized, and obeyed him. And it goes on. I can't read the whole thing. But opinions started to change after the couple of years after the Civil War. In 1867, His bail was covered by an unlikely group of people, an abolitionist, a wealthy industrialist, and the northern newspaper editor, Horace Greeley. They wanted reconciliation, and that was the general trade made at the time, reconciliation over punishment. His case never went to trial, and by 1868, a pardon from President Andrew Johnson removed the threat. Davis lived 22 years after his release, became president of a life insurance company, wrote several books. He was asked to become a senator from Mississippi. He refused, but he was always a Confederate. This is where he differs a bit from Robert E. Lee. He accepted the termination of the war, but continued to lecture and speak to crowds about the cause until his death. But in older age, he was respected, and his funeral was a big event. 20,000 mourners attended in New Orleans for that event. A funeral train just then went through the southern states, all the way to Richmond, Virginia. 1876, Davis had been specifically excluded from a universal amnesty bill that restored the full citizenship rights of remaining former Confederates. The amendment to the bill was proposed by James Blaine. He was running an election in 1876, and Stabby Jefferson Davis there was good politics, at least for the states he was going to win. There was outrage in the southern states, but Davis had no inclination to ask for any kind of pardon. It has been said that I should apply to the United States for a pardon, but repentance must precede the right of pardon, and I have not repented. That's what Davis said in 1881, I have not repented.
1: I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear... I, Jimmy Carter,
2: do solemnly swear that I will faithfully
0: execute, that I will faithfully execute the office of... In 1978, there's the final note to the Davis chapter. President Jimmy Carter officially restores the full citizenship rights of Jefferson Davis. Signing an act from Congress, so it was also Congress involved in this, that ended a century-long dispute. President Carter's satisfied statement on signing the act restoring citizenship to Jefferson Davis is quite different from the opinions of today, and this is in 1978. In in posthumously restoring the full citizenship rights to Jefferson Davis, the Congress officially completes the long process of reconciliation. He had served the United States long and honorably as a soldier. He was a member of the U.S. House and Senate and a secretary of war. It is fitting that Jefferson Davis should no longer be singled out for punishment. Arnesia needs to clear away the guilts and enmities and recriminations of the past to finally set at rest the divisions that threaten to destroy our nation and to discredit the principles on which it was founded. Our people need to turn their attention to the important tasks that still lie before us in establishing those principles for all people. That's Jimmy Carter. And I mean, before we jump all over Jimmy Carter, I think there's a couple of things to understand. You know, one, he was a Democrat running at a time where in the South was converting to Republicans and had to do everything he can to to keep on. Um, In fact, he'd only win the 76 election in 1980 would get blown out of the South. So this largely didn't help him much. I think another thing to understand with Jimmy Carter is that he also issued an amnesty for Vietnam War draft evaders, so it was done in this spirit. Uh, while he was doing that, and this is very often Carter's way back then. It was uh, a little to the left, a little to the right, you know. <laughs> so a little bit of context there. I would say, President Hayes to President Carter, you have the reconciliation, and since then, there's been a renewed emphasis on some of the evils of the Reconstruction period and the Redeemer governments that followed. And, you know, we don't have as much desire to go celebrate these Confederate people. President Ford gave a similar statement when he restored the citizenship and pardoned posthumously Robert E. Lee. And he read during his statement in 1975 from a letter that Lee wrote to a soldier, Confederate soldier, and the soldier asked, you know, kind of, what should we do now? And he said... The war between the states is over, and it's been decided, and now we have to work together in peace and harmony. A lot different from Jefferson Davis's statements. And, uh, you know, well, Lee would die before Davis, but his post-war life was a little more conciliatory than Davis was. And so there's a there's and certainly he was not supporting any movements such as Sir Nathan Bedford Forrest starting a, a guerrilla movement, the Ku Klux Klan. Personally I think it's good that we're revisiting history, revisiting the mon- monuments. Monuments are honorific. And the person receiving a monument must represent honor to the people. It's appropriate that localities, states, should decide what values they wish to honor. I don't come to this podcast with any general lecture point like, don't take history down, or some silly point like that. I love history, but you're getting a lot more of history from, from books. Now, it's not totally true that you don't learn anything from a statue. A statue is a reminder of the person itself, so that's just one thing. There are gradations, too. You know, we were just talking about Lee versus Davis. I've made a point earlier in the podcast about taking issue with Trump's equating Washington, removing a Lee statue and removing a Washington statue. There are gradations. There are decisions that, with the help of historians and and a cool look at the facts— We should be looking at the lack of them has hit home a bit for me. My own alma mater Stockton University removed a bust of Richard Stockton signer of the Declaration of Independence and the person that the college is named after. Um, I wasn't expecting Stockton to make national news. It's a nice college. It was really great to attend. there. It's a very small college, but they did this because he was a slave owner. They removed the bust from the library temporarily, they say they're going to have a class on Richard Stockton and going to set up a committee to decide you know, what kind of an exhibit they're going to have, a better exhibit. Okay. Um, I felt it was ill-considered. He was a signer of the Declaration. That means that he put his life on the line. And... As it turned out, Stockton was captured, so you have a debate there as to whether he was really a hero. Did he recant the declaration? I mean, he wasn't captured for that long, and so he got favorable treatment from the British because of who he was and because of the urgings of the Continental Congress and George Washington on his behalf. So he served about a month. It was during a terribly cold winter. Um, He you know, was likely not fed well, uh, the, 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 there's talk of bread and water, you know, Benjamin Rush writes to people that he's been treating horribly, put in chains, we're just not sure, there's no records of how he was, what condition he's kept in, but the fact is he was captured, and also that he put himself on the line, and that anyone who signed that Declaration of Independence, you know, whether they were Richard Stockton or John Hart, they could have very well been executed, they were not, and as it turns out, that at least the initial round of British generals were Leading the effort were Whiggish and looking for conciliation, and but that doesn't mean it couldn't have happened, and uh, so I think that he deserves the honor. Now, it's uh, there was some question as to whether he actually owned slave and here uh, slaves, and here a big debate was opened up, and and I think it was solved. You know, he actually I was interviewed and and worked with a reporter for the Newark Star Ledger, Paul Moleshine. And, you know, we've tried to find the available evidence we could from books. It's a hard thing because back in those days, you used the convention of saying servants instead of slaves. So in a lot of talk, we were talking about servants. But for slaves, somebody like Richard Stockton, who was a Quaker, and yes, Quakers up until a certain point still in some cases did own slaves. Abolition would really start in the 1760s in Pennsylvania and spread to Jersey later. He dies in 1781. You know, for someone that is a slave, there's evidence that one of the slaves in his house might have gone to his son-in-law, Benjamin Rush, and served as a assistant in his pharmacy. Um, Paul Molshein went to the Davis Revolutionary War Library, found Stockton's will, and it turns out in the will that he allowed his wife to release the slaves. This is the George Washington step, if you will. In other words, George Washington freed the one slave that it was his personal assistant and almost served like a military aide, and then the rest of the slaves were to be freed upon Martha Washington's death so that she would be provided for, and she did free those slaves that weren't the slaves from the Custis family because Virginia law had something to say about that. So that's the George Washington step. That's where Richard Stockton falls. Maybe treated them better. I mean, Benjamin Rush is going, his son-in-law, Richard Stockton's son-in-law, Benjamin Rush, is going to head up the Philadelphia Abolition Society. You know, I think these things get real complicated. Uh Stockton made a quick decision, and it is true that he was a slave owner, but he also signed the declaration. A college is named after him. You know, later his family, the Robert Stockton is gonna go on to be um keeping California as a free state and uh, intercepting uh slave trading trading vessels. I think that if every slave owner is simply reduced to that, a lot of nuance is missed. This Richard Stockton is not the same as Jefferson Davis, a slave owner with some kind of provision in the future. Like, say, um, well, there's great Asians, you know, George Wythe, who was a law instructor to Jefferson and Madison and many others, also a constitutional convention delegate, freed his slaves and was educating them encouraged others to do so. So that's like one level. Then you have the people like the Stockton and Washington who didn't free them, but freed them upon death and then upon wife's death, perhaps another level there. But, you know, you have people like Robert Todd and Henry Clay in Kentucky, who were, as we talked about with uh, the interview with Sidney Blumenthal, were a big influence on Lincoln, because while they were slave owners, they were making Kentucky slave-free eventually. They were leading that force. And unfortunately, the group that won out in the southern and a lot of the border states was a pro-slavery faction who wanted expansion. And so I think one looking at history as one knows more history needs to see some gradations. I mean, especially when deciding to remove a name or remove a statue that's already there. I mean. It's- I also think it's a big difference in deciding about a new statue that has to be a person whose honor is is obvious, you know, to the to either the locality or if it's a federal statute to all of us. Uh, if you're removing, I think you've got to think about how bad was the person in the scheme of things and removing and not removing is not the only position. There's also the idea of, you know, adding more statues As I said on Twitter, let's wake up some Masons. Let's get some more statues there. And uh, let's add to the experience. I have two examples. You can adhere to existing statues and put markers on them. Perfect example. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and there's a statue there in the center. There's an additional plaque that is next to the statue. So they didn't want to touch the original stone. But they noticed that the, the center statue uses the word savages to describe Indians and rebels to describe Confederates. So the plaque is used to interpret those words that this statue contained words that many find offensive today, describing groups. Of course, they equate to, that they need to correct both rebels and savages, uh, but that was that's a technology that could be used. So that we're not just seeing this honorific statue, but modernity gets a voice. Uh, Another great example is in Philadelphia and the president's house. This is where Washington's mansion was. And I think it's important because, you know, just for governmental study, you kind of see where, okay, the president's house was here and right down the block was Congress. And that's the way things functioned in the first or in the second location of the Capitol in Philadelphia in the 1790s. But as they dug up the president's mansion, they also found materials belonging to his slaves. And so that mansion, which is set up as a transparent object, it's actually a see-through house so that it doesn't block the view of Independence Hall, tells you about George Washington and also tells you about the slaves. Now, you can't take down everything and do that. It's not possible to do these kind of like three-dimensional studies with everything. For instance, that if if you also broke apart Independence Hall for some reason— because maybe members of constitutional convention were slave owners. Well, you wouldn't have the context that makes the president's house work because we're seeing it in the shadow of Independence Hall, but you've got to have the Independence Hall. So I just think, you know, more statues, more more context and discussion, shining a light on the struggles that occurred during these times and how common people were is all very useful. We talked a bit about one of the nation's most famous statues, the Washington Monument, and how controversial it was. The other most famous statue, the Statue of Liberty, could be said to be just as controversial. Indeed, its current symbolic representation as a beacon to immigrants is seemingly appropriate. Immigrants certainly passed her and saw her torch. Historically, it was not the most likely symbol. It celebrated liberty, American liberty, including the emancipation of slaves. Certainly, Bartholdi, the original statue maker, wanted that. It also celebrated and, let's face it, was designed to foster French-American relations and to promote French technology and their ability to create such an object. And the statue could have been located in Boston or Philadelphia. There was actually a big reception for the torch when it was hosted in Philadelphia. That's all that Bartholdi originally built, and he couldn't afford it. He needed to do a fundraiser, brings a torch to Philadelphia, thousands of people go to see this great reception. He's thinking about possibly Philadelphia as a location. Within New York, it could have been in Brooklyn or Central Park. They didn't necessarily have to be located in the harbor. So this idea that it was designed to be in that harbor as a beacon to immigrants, it might not even have been New York. So that came later. Among people raising money for the pedestal, which had to be raised in America, Pulitzer's world would put families' names in the newspaper if they donated, you know, a dollar. There was a lot of that going on. About $100,000 was raised for this pedestal from Joseph Pulitzer's New York Daily World and from average everyday people. African-American newspapers also joined in. The Cleveland Gazette and the Philadelphia Christian Recorder were among those who ran ads, raising money for the Statue of Liberty. The Atlanta Daily World would eventually take the statue as its masthead, and African-Americans marched into Bethaldi Day at the statue's dedication. These actions were not taken to celebrate immigrants. It was to celebrate liberty. Of course, it was very disappointing when the dedication ceremonies happen in 1886, and you see this reaction in the African American newspapers that there's, they're celebrating at the dedication individual liberty, not specific liberation of slaves or emancipation. They're mad about that. The Pittsburgh Courier would eventually use the image of the statue in the 1920s to contrast this great Statue of Liberty with the current state of black Americans terrorized by the Klan and being fearful. W.E. Du Bois noted in his column when he was asked about what he thought of the Statue of Liberty, a French woman's comment that the statue had its back towards America and face towards France. These uses of the liberty, even the Statue of Liberty, even though they're in the negative, tell you what it was meant to be and what still at the turn of the century and a little after we were thinking of when we thought of the Statue of Liberty. It's in 1903 when the poem, The New Colossus, Emily Lazarus, is uh, fastened on to the pedestal. And we start to see the Statue of Liberty become a symbol of immigration, a tired, hungry, poor. But that was put on later. This is not to knock the idea of the Statue of Liberty as appropriately a statue of immigrants as we understand it. I grew up always understanding it that way. Indeed, it's to reinforce it. Symbols change. What they mean do change over time. And that's something to consider as we move forward and decide how to handle our monuments. I want to thank you for listening. Please remember our sponsor, Mac Weldon. And the Premium Podcast is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Consider signing up. It can be as little as $2 a month. Help support the show. And also, you'll get bonus episodes.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz